Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. But tonight we're talking about work as restoration. Uh, so rest is in there, right? Um, and if you'll remember last time, which was two weeks ago, actually, Serena uh, introduced Jesus into the picture. Jesus has redeemed us from idolatry and slavery to our work, where uh, we may find our identity in our work so much so that it's, um, it rules over our lives. And in Jesus, we can have freedom from that. And what is that freedom for? It's freedom to do the work that he has called us to, uh, but with a newness of life, uh, with a freedom as opposed to uh, a slavery. So when Jesus enters your life, everything's different. Uh, in RUF, we believe that that also applies to your everyday life, your, your vocation as students, your hourly job uh, on the weekends, uh, even your chores. Everything we do, uh, everything uh, we do, we see differently once Jesus has entered the picture. So what does that look like? What now? If Jesus has redeemed our attitude towards work, our vision for work, our understanding of work, how do we live in that way? And so tonight we're going to look at how work restores. Uh, The next uh, time we gather, which is after spring break, uh, we'll talk about how uh, work is consummated or it's completed or it's fulfilled in the end um, when Jesus returns. Um, Let me pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Um, Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would uh, be in uh, this teaching. uh, Use your word to change our hearts, to change our lives, to show us more and more of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever had like an object, maybe a car, maybe a musical instrument that was really dear to you, and then it was broken, and it was just terrible? Um, All you wanted was it back. Well, um, I had a guitar, a Martin acoustic solid top guitar. It was mahogany, so it was dark wood. My name for it was whole wheat uh, because it was different than all the white bread out there. Um, But I got it as a graduation gift in high school, uh, and I brought it to Boston with me about 10 years ago. And I didn't realize how dry the air gets in winter in Boston apartments with these radiators that just seem like just absurd, uh, you know, temperatures, but the air just gets so dry and right, your skin just gets dry. And so my guitar was out on a stand and the first couple of winters, it just took a beating. The guitar started splitting. The the neck started breaking away from the body. So you could see daylight through uh, the neck, the crack that was there between the neck and the body. Uh, and it was awful. I mean, here was not only just a special gift that my parents had given me, uh, but it was also a really nice guitar that I really wanted to keep my entire life. Um, and so what did I do? I went down to Berkeley School of Music and found a repair shop. And the guy did an amazing job repairing this instrument where I can't actually tell. I mean, you can kind of see a little bit different coloration, but it's pretty much good as new. He restored something that mattered to me. Um, And I actually found out recently that this kind of guitar appreciates in value. And so like, I'm even more like, okay, this thing has to stay in a humidity controlled environment, has to stay away from my two-year-old and my one-year-old. 
but it still has scars, right? I still have that memory, and even if you look under a microscope, it still has the scar from that injury, if you will, right? It has been restored, but it's not completely new, and it's also not the same way it was before it was broken. So, where am I going with this? When we speak of work restoring, we're speaking about uh, two things. We're implying two things, that there is an original order or beauty to the world when God created it. And secondly, that something has changed. Something's happened. It's broken. The neck is split. Uh, There's a fallenness from the original order and beauty. And this, what I've just told you in those two points, is a story. And if we don't see our work within a story, we will lose the point completely. We will lose the plot. We won't know why are we at a university? Why are we doing our work? Why are we day in, day out working our tails off? For what? For what? Well, tonight we're going to talk about the story that God has written. Uh, This is the story that we find in Scripture and that God is still writing uh, in his church and people like you and me. Um, In Genesis 1, the story begins. God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates it good. Now, it wasn't all that it was intended to be, meaning it still had a destiny. It still had even more beauty and more perfection to come. But in Genesis 3, that destiny was interrupted. Everything changed. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And ever since the original order and beauty and goodness of creation has been marred. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But now there's an opportunity for restoration. I want to look at, I want to look at three things. Um, the opportunity of restoration in our work. Secondly, the limits of restoration in our work. And finally, the ultimate hope of complete restoration in our work. Um, So opportunity, limits, and hope. Opportunity. So we just read a story, a history, of something that really happened. Um, And it's maybe very unfamiliar to you. Uh, we jumped right into Ezra or in the third chapter, right? And I want to kind of give you a little backstory. It's going to be really quick and cursory. Uh, it's about the Jewish people. It's a part of their history. The Jews were people that were set apart by God. To them belong the promise of the covenants. God said, I am going to love you forever. And I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you uh, this, this land, the promised land of Canaan. And there is going to be a temple where my presence is, and I'm going to be with you in that temple forever. This is what they assumed. This is what they thought. And then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, in about 587 BC came and conquered Jerusalem. And in the middle of Jerusalem, there was the holy temple, and he destroyed the temple. So you can imagine their dreams, their visions, their, their hopes for the future were shattered as the stone of the temple fell down. And furthermore, they're forced away. Many of them were forced 
to go into exile, to move to Babylon, to a foreign place, to work for people uh, that they did not know, that spoke different languages, that worshipped different gods. They were exiles and strangers. But after decades of exile, the Jews were able to return because there was a new king in town, King Cyrus. And in the year 539 to 538, somewhere in there, he made a decree. He said, hey, Jews, you can go back home. You can go back to Jerusalem. And furthermore, you can build your temple back. You can rebuild this temple. So that's where we're jumping in when uh, this man Zerubbabel kind of leads this project of restoration of this temple architecture. Let's look at uh, verses uh, 10 through 11 again. Um, They were just getting started when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, uh, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals. These are loud musical instruments, by the way. Um, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now remember, David and his son Solomon built the first temple. So this is the second temple. So they had instructions of how to celebrate when the temple was built. Um, They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if I said it at the volume they said it, it, it might scare you, right? There was a shout, right? They didn't say that they just sang it softly. It said that they shouted this. Maybe it wasn't even to a melody. It was a shout. They were so excited. Because now the dreams that they had were being restored before their eyes. The foundation of the temple had been laid. Finally, God was going to come and bless his people again. So who brought this restoration about? Did Cyrus, did the builders, did the priests? Well, they they all did. But first and foremost, it was God moving in their hearts to bring this restoration about, right? If you look through the book of Ezra, you may not immediately think, oh, this is a book about work. This is a book about what it means to do our daily uh, jobs uh, as Christians. But what you'll see is there are everyday ordinary vocations mentioned all throughout the book of Ezra. There are kings and political leaders, right? We already talked about King Cyrus. There are scribes, there are priests, you know, nowadays pastors. Um, There are singers and musicians, gatekeepers, you know, like a security guard, Um, temple servants, masons, carpenters. And there were a lot of people who had vocations that didn't immediately apply to the temple, but with their trade, with whatever they did to make money, they contributed that money. Now, I want to use this story, this kind of micro story of God's restoration, this kind of a motif to kind of stop and think about God's work of restoration in our own day and with our own vocations. What are some principles that still apply? Well, God is the author of the story. When you think all of God's plans, all of his promises are rubble, think again. He will fulfill his promises. We can rest on that hope. Um, And this will give us motivation to work towards restoration in our individual and corporate callings. And we're going to talk more and more about this. So, um, 
But as members of the household of God, we too are about the work of restoration. We are a part of this process of rebuilding what has been torn down in our vocations. Um, Theologians have talked about this as part of Christian's calling is to uh, be a part of God's work in bringing about his kingdom. So if you think this was like a micro story of the kingdom of Israel, this little temple being restored, um, now God is uh, reclaiming his rule over all of creation so that all of creation will worship him again. Uh, How does that work, though? Right? Okay, so that's really ethereal and abstract. Well, um, theologians talk about this being broken up into these different spheres, these different areas where different people in different walks uh, do this work. So um, I'll quote one theologian. Um, he says this, there's a sphere of science, a sphere of art, a sphere of family, a sphere of the state, of commerce and industry. And he says this, whenever one of these spheres comes under the controlling influence of the principle of the divine supremacy or God's kingly rule and glory. And this outwardly reveals itself, meaning it's sometimes even externally visibly seen. There we can truly say that the kingdom of God has become manifest. That God's work of restoration is happening. And now stop and think about this because this might blow your mind. Because maybe you've grown up in a church that has taught you the only Christian thing you do every week is on Sunday morning or Wednesday night when you're at the church building. Well, this breaks down the walls of the church, right? And it says, no, all of life, everything you do from Monday to Sunday or Sunday to Monday, um, and it is encompassed under this, this grand vision of God's kingdom. So today, when you were in a class, I don't know if you're thinking, how does this kingdom work? How am I being a part of restoring God's kingdom and his glory in this world? Um, You probably weren't, and that's okay. I want to get you thinking about it, though. I want to get you thinking about it now. Um, And I think what's maybe most helpful is just an example, a story of a real person that I know. He's a friend of mine, and he actually graduated from BU many, many years ago. Um, He went on to an elite law school. And he had his really a, a pick of any law job he wanted. You know, lawyers can make just insane amounts of money. So uh, he had the pedigree that he could have gotten that job that he wanted. But instead, he opened up a private practice on his own to work for, um, for immigrants who usually couldn't afford his services. So a lot of what he did ended up being pro bono work. These immigrants were often poor, have limited ability in English, and are thus often disadvantaged in deciphering the world of immigration law. Um, But he had this belief. He had this vision beyond the money he could make, the prestige he could have. He had a vision for God's kingdom and God's glory. And he said, you know what, each of these immigrants that are coming to this country, can't speak our language, are barely scraping by and want to abide by the law and want to become citizens. You know what, they need an advocate. Because when I read the Gospels and I see Christ, I see him 
caring for the foreigner, the stranger, those who are disadvantaged. He said, I want to be like Christ, my king. Uh, He knew that when God created all humans, he created them in the image of God, meaning they each have a dignity. We each have an equal dignity. And he said, I want to be a part of restoring justice in the world by showing them that dignity and allowing them to have fair treatment under the law. He wasn't helping them to uh, get out from under it, but he wanted them to have fair treatment in a system that often advantages those with a lot of resources and disadvantages those with not a lot of resources. This is an example of a man who is trying to do his calling in the world, um, however imperfectly, and however sometimes maybe even unsuccessfully, but he's trying to see restoration of the original order of creation. Why don't we have more of this? Let's turn to our second point, the limits of restoration. Back to Ezra 3, starting in verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. What is going on here? What is going on here? There are shouts of joy, but there are these older men who were weeping. And it sounds like they were weeping very loudly. Why were they weeping? Um, Well, it was those who had seen the first temple. They had seen the temple that Solomon built. They had seen its original glory, and they knew that God had blessed that, and the Spirit of the Lord had entered into that temple. And it was a glorious time. And when they saw this second temple, the foundation being laid, they were reminded that the first had been lost. There was something that had been broken. Um, And it turns out this second temple did not receive that same blessing. The Spirit of the Lord did not enter into the Holy of Holies. It did not have the same uh, power that it once did. There was something missing. There was a reason to cry and to weep. In the same way, our work to restore the order of creation, uh, the beauty of creation, has limitations. It doesn't always accomplish what we want it to. Um, So I I studied abroad in Italy for a semester. Um, As you know, Italy is known for its opera. I had never been to an opera. I'm not trying to impress you with... You know, I'm just this opera guy. I'm not. Um, but one night, all the students, we got dressed up to the nines, you know, the, the fanciest clothes we had. We felt like royalty because we were going to go see La Boheme. Uh, and it's this Italian opera. And yes, some of you might know it. It's, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we felt like we were just going to just taste what this glorious thing of Italian opera was for one night. And of course, none of us had really uh, paid attention to the opera, so it seemed to be executed flawlessly. Like, it was just 
amazing. Like, I mean, these people's voices, like the acting, the visuals and everything. But about um, midway through, during one of the solos, um, there is this like cackling and heckling and just this, from the audience, this uh, kind of uproar. Uh, the, the soloist hadn't hit one of the notes properly. And so we learned that this is, a, this is an interactive experience. And these Italians really like their opera. And if they know, hey, that wasn't the way it's supposed to be, they let you know from their seat. Um, and and, and it, I, you know, if, if you're up there, it has to be brutal, right? Can you, can you musicians you know, imagine this kind of thing happening? Jackie and Joe and maybe others. Um, um, but, but what these Italians, these you know, real opera aficionados, they knew the glory of the original. They knew what it was like or what it's supposed to be like. Right? They knew the beauty of the sound. Maybe they even had read the music and knew the notes that this soprano was supposed to hit. But it didn't. It fell a little flat. Um, even the most beautiful work of art carries with it a sadness. Um, it's just a taste. It's just a glimmer, and it's not quite it. Even the most perfect and beautiful pieces of artwork or pieces of music, it, it ends. After a while, it's over. Um, and maybe it doesn't scratch the same itch you, you want it to. Um, it only gives us a taste of something we long for more, right? And maybe this is what these old men who had seen the first temple were thinking, like, why did all of that destruction and death happen in the first place? And you know what? This, this foundation here for the second temple is beautiful, but it's nothing like the first. Um, this is true for all forms of work. There is always an imperfection about it. Uh, my guitar, well, even though it was restored, there was an imperfection there. It's probably not actually worth as much as I'd like to think. Um, there's a white brick wall across from my house, and it is just asking for graffiti. <laughs> and sure enough, it just gets tagged, like, all the time. And right now, there's a huge red tag on it. And uh, every time, it gets painted white, painted over. You know? Do you keep painting over their graffiti? Do you keep at this work of restoration? Why would you keep going? Um, a doctor performs a surgery where she's only able to partially remove the tumor. Well, do you still do the surgery? Do you still keep at it? Um, your dorm room maybe looked so great after that, that cleaning you did. Um, and it smelled like amazing when you put that candle um, in the window. Uh, you guys can't use candles, sorry. <laughs> Don't use candles. Don't use candles. But now it's full of Grubhub containers and clothes and whatnot. Do you keep cleaning? Uh, the need for restoration is unending, right? Right? Um, all of our work is still marked by the effects of the curse of sin. Um, we all still long for and hope for that glory. So what is that ultimate hope? Once again, it's Jesus. Now, the story of this temple doesn't end there. In Haggai, God speaks through this prophet. 
And he says, uh, speak now to Zerubbabel. This is Haggai 2, 2 through 9. Speak now to Zerubbabel. Remember, he's the guy in charge of the temple rebuilding. And to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of uh, Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong. All you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. He's saying that even though it's not in the temple, my spirit is in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. The latter glory will be greater than the former. The temple that God will fill with his presence will exceed every other temple. Guess what? This glory has come in part. Jesus, the cornerstone, the cornerstone, the foundation has been laid. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. This comes from Ephesians Two. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer exiles. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the temple of God, the place where God dwells, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Who is the temple? What is the temple? You, the church. You are the dwelling place of God. And this temple will never be destroyed. It will never be shaken. For its foundation is Christ himself. We will no longer be exiles. We will no longer cry one day. We will be home with God. Amen. Lord, would you make this happen? Lord, would you continue to help us uh, in our work of restoring the glory of creation, the order that you intended? Uh, Would you do this by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.